Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, Jason here, and I am so honored that we have David Kessler with us today. David is the world's foremost expert on grief. We could just stop there, but we'll go on a little bit more. He's co-authored the seminal book on grief and grieving and life lessons with the, the famous Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, You Can Heal Your Heart, with Louise Hay, the spiritual icon. And he's also the author of Finding Meaning, Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms, and the Needs of the Dying, which is praised by Mother Teresa. And his latest must read is called Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. He's been featured pretty much everywhere, New York Times, LA Times, CNN, Fox, NBC, PBS, CBS, Oprah, I could go on and on. Uh, Quite simply, when it comes to grief, David is the expert. And it's so uh, humbling to uh, be spending time with him right now. So David, welcome. Jason, I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you for having me. So, And thank you for that introduction. You've said so many wonderful things. You forgot to uh, say that I was president of the ninth grade uh, two <laughs> years in a row, actually. Uh, so did you repeat ninth grade? I did. I did. <laughs> it took my kids a long time to get that joke. And finally, they said, are you saying you were in the ninth grade twice? And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying, guys. I love it. I love it. Well, for those not familiar, you have had an incredible journey with grief, starting with experiences from your childhood all the way up to the, the tragic and sudden loss of your 21-year-old son. So could you just you know walk us through your journey with grief? Sure. And I think, you know, as we begin to talk about this subject, it's important for people to know that there are many different types of grief. You know, in my mind, grief is always the death of something the death of a person, the death of a marriage, which is a divorce, the loss of a pet, a job loss. We're going to get into, I'm sure, a lot of losses that are coming up in the pandemic. But certainly, I got acquainted with loss early in my life. I had a mother who was in and out of the hospital uh, when I was growing up. And when I was 13, she became ill and had to go to the hospital in the big city, which was a few hours away. And she's in this sterile ICU dying that I wasn't able to get into because it had to be 14 and I was 13. And at the hotel across the street, a fire breaks out, fire trucks pull up and shooting begins. And they had to realize very quickly, this wasn't just a fire. This was an active shooter. It became one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So you know, at a very, very young age, I'm dealing with a mother dying in the ICU and then this mass shooting. So it taught me a lot. And at a young age, I knew she could have died better than the death she had in the ICU. And there should have been someone there to help me. I sort of knew there wasn't. And in some ways, I think I became the person who maybe could have helped me through that. And so walk us through also, you've talked about, you know, that, that you know, in, in the journey, you know, you wrote this seminal book, if you will, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, you know, as we talk about the different types of grieving, you're writing this book 
you know, one, I, summarize the book, if you will, for the audience. Then two, while you're writing this book with Elizabeth, her health is declining and she's essentially dying. Can you, can you talk about that for a moment? Sure. Many people know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had written on uh, death and dying in 1969 about these stages that people who are dying often go through. And over the years, they were adapted somewhat poorly for grief. And uh, Elizabeth and I, she had been an icon to me. I never believed I would even get to know her. And uh, we, we were able to write a book called Life Lessons Together. And uh, after that book, she finally decided, all right, it's time to like do these stages of grief because uh, people are really misinterpreting them. So we said literally on page one of the book, they're not a map for grief. They're not linear. You don't have to do these in order. They overlap. Your grief is unique. And the stages for anyone not familiar with them are denial, which is, I can't believe this is happening. Anger. You're angry about it. Bargaining. Oh, if I had only changed one thing, all the what ifs, the regrets, depression and sadness, and then acceptance not necessarily in that order. And uh, it was very clear in the writing of that book with Elizabeth that it would be her last. And she was aware of that. She even wrote a, a, um, a preface that said, I'm done. And uh, it was powerful to sit with her and do this work. Elizabeth was a, she had an honesty that either you admired or it would piss you off because she was extremely honest. You know, we would say she wasn't filtered now. Very, very honest. And uh, I appreciated that in her. Um, and uh, it was extraordinary to see her do some of her own grief work as we wrote the book. And I did some of my grief work, obviously, too. I don't think you can write a book on grief and be authentic without dealing with losses yourself that are coming up. So as we talk about the different types of grief, so you talked about losing your mother, you know, losing a friend, a contemporary, and then you lost a child. And, you know, so for me personally, when I was um, 45, when I was 19, my father dropped out of a heart attack. Boom. Here, gone. Uh, and then in my mid-20s, I lost one of my best friends to suicide. And in my mid-30s, I lost my grandmother uh, from cancer. She, you know, essentially, I grew up with my mother and, and grandmother. She raised me. So it was like losing a parent. And losing my father and what I felt in that, for example, I, I, I was in shock. I was in a room for two days crying. By the time we got to the funeral, I actually was pretty good. And I, I felt almost like a spiritual awakening, if you will. And then fast forward to my losing my friend, it felt entirely different. And I was a complete mess at the funeral. And both sudden, but different. And then my grandmother, which was more pronounced, uh, maybe the, the closest of the three was my grandmother. I felt myself grieving for a long time and crying and, and, and for, for a while <laughs> and it took a long time to get over. And I said, wow, th this is so, so odd. Maybe this is natural, but I'm grieving 
entirely differently for all of these people. And so my, my question to you is, we mentioned, you know, there's just the one type of grief with death, and we're going to get into COVID-19, the, the, the other forms of loss we're experiencing. And you also touched on there's, there's no right or wrong way to grieve, but there is a process. And can you talk about, hey, I'm curious, what, what, what I was experiencing, was that normal? And is it, are there healthier ways to grieve? and unhealthier ways. If there's no right or wrong way, it's like when we talk about nutrition, there's no one size fits all approach, but we can all pretty much agree that eating too much sugar every day is probably bad. It's the same thing hold with regards to grief and loss. So let me go back to a few of the things you mentioned. First of all, <laughs> a lot in when, you talked, <laughs> when you talked about all those loved ones who died, the first thing I'm aware of is that you're aware of the uh, how you experience them so differently. And you experience them so differently because you had a different relationship with each of them. And they were different people. We somehow think there's a one experience of grief. And you dip into it when this person dies. And you dip into it when that person dies. And it isn't like that. Your father was unique in all the world and your relationship with him was unique in all the world and with your grandmother and with your friend. So those are all going to be very, very different experiences. And I think that's the first thing to recognize is that if you would have said to me up oh, there, all exactly the same, I'd be like, really? So, yeah, that's exactly how I would expect you to experience them. I think we don't move on from loss. I think we learn to live with it. You know, people ask me all the time, how long is she going to grieve? How long am I going to grieve? My answer is always, well, how long are they going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead a long time, you're going to grieve a long time. You know, just you telling me about them, your voice was different. There was a connection different with each of them that's still present in you. We're not in, when I say we grieve the rest of our lives, because they're dead for the rest of our lives, it doesn't mean we're always gonna be in pain. I mean, ultimately grief is love. So my hope for people that in time, uh, we grieve with more love than pain in our own pace, in our own way. And so that also came up for me as you were talking. And um, there was a third part to what you had said, the last part. What is, was your last there, question? Is there a healthier way? Oh, and I know there's yeah, no yeah, one got size it, got fits it. all, but is there a healthier right. way? So here's the thing that's interesting. I'm teaching people what our great-grandparents knew how to do. If society has done anything, it's messed up how we grieve. Your soul, your psyche, your emotional self, are built to take a number of hits this lifetime. You are actually built for loss. You organically know how to grieve. But society tells us, be productive, you've got three days, get back to work, you should be over in a year, you're crying too much, you're crying too little. We have all these externals that keep us from a very organic process. So the right way to grieve is actually your way. It's actually your way to grieve. There is no right way. There is no right model. The stages aren't the only model of grief. There's no, 
you know, we know how to do this deep within us. We have to, you know, I joke about, we come from a long line of dead people. I mean, our ancestors have all done this. You know, if we allow this process, uh, it will unfold. And so, you know, with Cougar Ross, you know, you, you talk about these five stages in your latest book, you, you add the sixth stage about meaning. And for me personally, what's helped me is meaning and purpose, is having faith. So can you walk us through quickly sort of the five stages and the evolution to the, the sixth stage and why that's so critical? Sure. So the stages are experiences that people have. And I always say the important thing is to remember the stages reflect where you are. You don't follow the stages. So the stages just appear. They're very organic. Listen, they're appearing right now. They appear, like I said, in, in a lot of losses. They're appearing in the pandemic. I'll do them real quick with the pandemic. I can't believe this is happening. How in our modern world can this be happening? Why can't medicine handle this? What's up with our government? I mean, that's denial. This shouldn't be happening this way. Anger is, really, really, we can't go out. Well, that pisses me off. I can't leave my house. Really, that anger's there. Then we have bargaining. All right, let me get this straight. Two weeks at home and we're good, right? That's the deal. Two weeks at home and then we're good. We need that deal. Then, oh my gosh, this could go on. Is it, Can no one tell me an end date? And we get sad and we get depressed. Then we may begin to find acceptance. All right, this is my reality. So what am I going to do with my time? How am I going to redo my life? How am I going to make this work? Acceptance is actually where the power is. Now, we don't find one big acceptance, like, oh, I found it in the top drawer. I looked everywhere. It's not one big acceptance. It's a million little acceptances. So that's how the stages play out. They overlap. You're angry one moment. You're finding a little acceptance. Then, as you mentioned, uh, my younger son died. And the way this had played out for me is I was so curious about Viktor Frankl's work throughout my life. Viktor Frankl had survived concentration camps and wrote so much about meaning. And I was just amazed at this concept of how do you appreciate a sunset or a sunrise in a concentration camp? How do you find light in the darkness? So I had been just dancing with that, you know, throughout my whole life, you know, and um, then I had written a few chapters on meaning and grief, and I put them aside, figuring I, I think I was going to lecture and I'd get back to them at some point. And then my younger son, David, died unexpectedly out of the blue at 21 years old. And it was brutal, still is brutal. I canceled everything. I was home, devastated. About a month or two later, I found this, this papers about this meaning. And I remember picking them up and going, yeah, like this is going to help with this pain and throwing them back down. Then about a week later, I picked them up again and I began reading about meaning. And meaning did not take away the pain, but it gave me a cushion. 
And so I think meaning does something to help balance the pain. I began talking to people whose spouses had died, who had found meaning after that. And it really began a lot of my healing. And it began the book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. I was so honored that the Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add an iconic sixth stage to her stages. So that became this book. And I always tell people when they hear about meaning, the meaning's not in the death. You know, there's no meaning in my son dying horribly at 21. Meaning is what I do after. There's no meaning in this virus. There's going to be meaning in what we do after this. And in so many ways, we talk about post-traumatic stress. It's such a buzzword. I really made sure in this book, I talked about post-traumatic growth. How do we grow through grief? How do we grow in grief? You know, we think our job is to make the grief smaller. The reality is for us to get bigger. So, you know, when I think of meaning and purpose, again, I can't help to to think of faith and spirituality and, you know, leads me to your, the book you you co-wrote with spiritual icon Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Heart. And, And so... Talk to us about what role spirituality plays in this process. And, you know, for me personally, as we talk about meaning there, I get it, it would be extraordinarily hard, I think, for me to uh, recover, to heal from the loss of my life if I didn't think there was something greater play. And I, I understand that sometimes also what I'll, I'll often reference uh, I'll watch the pastor, I'll read his books, Joel Osteen, and he has a line, which I'll often repeat. Sometimes things happen, you, put, you have to put them in the I don't know drawer. Like they just happen and put it away. Sometimes terrible things happen. You can't make sense of it and so forth. Because uh, I do think you, you could end up going down a rabbit hole if you start, well, why? What's the good, you know, what's the silver lining here? And sometimes there just isn't one. So like taking a step back, what role does spirituality play in this process, in the healing process specifically? I think it's part of who we are. You know, as the saying goes, we're, we're, we're not a um, human having a spiritual experience. We're a, you know, spirit having a human experience. So I think it starts with all that. I think that feeds and connects us very well into meaning. And people who are meaningless meaning they can find no meaning in anything, have such a harder time in grief. And I think if you're connected to your spirituality, you're more likely to have a basis for that meaning. And, you know, Louise Hay was my friend for 30 years. Um, We knew each other before her books and all that. And, And, you know, she was just always such a gift. No one paid attention to words and how you think like Louise. I mean, I would joke, I would say to her like, I can't wait to see you this weekend. And she would go, yes, you can. (laughs) And I'd be like, oh gosh. And she'd go, I'm looking forward to seeing you. And I'm like, all right, all right, I got it, Louise. But you know, there was something powerful in that. I can also remember one day we were having lunch and you know, lunch with Louise is like, She's thanking the food. She's grateful for the food. 
And I said, are we going to be grateful for like everything on her plate? And she said, absolutely. And she talked about the green beans. And I mean, she went through the plate. And I said, do you do this all the time? And she goes, oh my gosh, David, in the morning I get up and I thank the bed that just cushioned me during the night and I thank the pillows. And I remember going, oh, that feels like a lot of work. <laughs> and then I began to watch her over the years and it dawned on me, Louise Hay lives in a better, nicer world than I do. She lives in an amazing world that I think I should check into that hotel. So it's, it was such an interesting way to watch her over the years. So as we segue to the subject of how the grief game has changed in the COVID-19 world, I'm curious, what do you think Louise Hay would, would say if you called her right now about COVID-19? What, what would her affirmation be? Well, I think her affirmation, usually the one I just got that she would say a lot is, all is well. And I think it's hard to remember that in times like this. And all is well, I think, doesn't mean inaction. You know, I think people hear all is well and go, oh, okay, let's just not worry about it all. I think all is well means we can do this. This, this can turn out okay. We have power in this. And that there is a bigger picture. You know, the bigger picture to think about, every generation gets something. You get AIDS, you get Vietnam War, you get the Holocaust. You know, I think this generation maybe thought, yeah, not us, we're good. And I think people have been humbled. I think every generation gets something. I don't pretend to understand the spiritual realm, but I know that we grow through tragedies and the human species grows. And, you know, my guess is we're going to learn so much about viruses because of this. Medicine's going to propel forward. You know, the species is going to change and evolve. So I do think there's a bigger picture here. And in that bigger picture, all is well. It doesn't mean I shouldn't wash my hands to protect you. It doesn't mean I shouldn't stay home. I want to protect you. You know, I think Louise might even say something. If there's ever a moment to realize we're our brother and sister's keeper, this is that moment. So as it pertains to grieving, you know, I'll use 9-11 as an example. You know, I was in New York at the time. It was devastating. And I can remember how the city really came together and grieved together and restaurants were packed and bars were packed, lots of drinking back then. Uh, but but we, we came together to grieve collectively. And now here we are almost 20 years later, I'm back in New York and now we're grieving, but separately. And walk us through the different types of grieving right now and, and how that process has fundamentally changed for people. So uh, I would say a few things about that. You know, we have many different griefs. We have micro and macro griefs and everything in between. You know, when a loved one dies, that is our, usually our biggest loss. There's a million other losses we deal with. Alzheimer's is a loss of the person's personality that we knew, the loss of their control, a loss of their memory. 
right now we're dealing with people who have had weddings canceled, graduation is canceled, they're stuck home, kids are upset that they can't have play dates or soccer or whatever the sport is they were hoping for. Those are all real griefs. One of the things we think about in grief is we think there's a hierarchy and a comparison. And I feel like grief is a no-judgment zone. There is no comparing in grief. You know, my son died horrible, horrible grief. It doesn't mean I can look at a bride who canceled her wedding because of COVID-19, that, by the way, she's been dreaming about since she was five years old. And yes, we could minimize it and go, oh, but she'll be able to have that wedding in six months again, no big deal. I still can't tell her that her tears don't count. You know, my loss of my loved ones stand on their own. And her loss of her wedding stands on her own. The loss of her wedding doesn't take away from mine, and mine doesn't take away from hers. And we all are experiencing this, and now we have job losses. So all these are real losses. And, you know, if you've got a child that, you know, the worst thing that's happening in their world is they can't have a play date with Susie down the street and they're, you know, both six years old, that is their worst loss right now. You know, when people ask me, which is the worst loss? I always go yours. Whatever you're dealing with is your worst loss. So I think it's important to remember there's no hierarchy and all these griefs exist together. So how do we support each other? And, you know, specifically, so I'm a guy and I am a former athlete and a lot of my friends aren't the best at articulating uh, feelings. And, and you know, I, I, would, I would joke and serious that, that I think in, in, I am generalizing, but men sometimes are, are better at showing up physically when there's when there's need for support, not the best with words though. So whether that means showing up at a bar, having a beer and not really saying anything or maybe saying, I'm sorry, or how are you doing? Uh, but in general, there, there was, there is something to be said for this notion of showing up and being present. And right. How is that? And we can't exactly. So how do we, we manage? Can't. How do right. we be close? And like Skype helps and FaceTime well, and all those things. But well, grief is isolating on a good day in a normal world. And now we're isolated in our isolation. And so it is very challenging. And listen, at the end of the day, words aren't always the best thing in grief anyway. I mean, you know, there's a lot of words we say in grief that hurt each other. I mean, one of the things is I'm a fixer. I mean, a lot of times uh, men, people in helping professions tend to be fixers. And in grief, there's nothing broken. You're in grief. There's nothing to fix. And so there are no words. And sometimes it might be, this is horrible. I'm just going to sit here with you. I mean, there are no right words. So I would say to men or anyone, like, don't even look for the right words because there's no words that are going to take away this pain. And sometimes the words are just, I can't think of any words that would help with this. And I love you. And I'm just sitting in this with you. And I, I'm sitting in this with you on Skype or on Zoom or on FaceTime. And I wish I could come over there and sit with you there. But we can't right now. 
and I just want you to know you're not alone. And so, you know, you mentioned isolation and isolation, too much time alone with just you and your thoughts for a lot of people can, can, can be a uh, huge opportunity for profound personal and professional growth, but and also can bubble up trauma or unresolved issues. And so how do we navigate through that if it is bubbling up some trauma or unresolved issues? Well, think about this. We are really the first generation that has feelings about feelings. And it's a byproduct of the self-help movement that literally we feel angry. Oh, but we shouldn't be angry. We feel sad, but yet there's people who have it worse than us. And we have all these feelings that get half felt. I'm angry, but I shouldn't be. So I'm going to stuff that down. I'm sad, but I've got no right. So we stuff down these feelings and we live in this existence with feelings that are half felt. And then what happens? There's a pandemic and we're stuck at home with nothing but our feelings. I mean, it's a bit of a nightmare. And so it is, like you say, an opportunity to deal with all those feelings. You know, I tell people, we get afraid of this gang of feelings. If I start crying, it's never going to end. If I get angry, I'm going to kill someone. The truth is, if you feel the sadness, you're going to be sad and it's going to move through you in a few minutes. If you feel the anger, you're going to get angry and it's going to move through you in a few minutes and another feeling will come about. But it's suppressing the feelings that really turns them all into pressure cookers. So I invite people to just allow those feelings to happen. They're not going to overtake you. You know, if you've got a thousand tears to cry, you can't stop at 99. Hey, could you talk a minute about the importance of, you know, if you can't physically be present, you know, being present on Skype or, or FaceTime and what comes to mind, uh, a, a friend of mine, Kate Fagan, wrote this incredible book called What Made Maddie Run. And it's, it's a story about uh, a runner at Penn who uh, took her own life and, and, and no one could figure it out because it seemed like she had everything and the book is about her journey. And, and, and one of the things that stayed with me was in the book, they talk about how so much of her communication was through text and she was essentially communicating, she was hurting, but texting and emojis, you, you, you couldn't hear her voice. You couldn't hear how bad it was. And I, I, it just had a profound impact on me where I said, wow, that's so true. When you're, we're, we're texting, we're emailing, you can't, the emotion doesn't always come through in, in that emoji. And just talk about that for a moment. Not only that, from their end, their emotions don't come through. And from our end, we project our emotions onto the text, you know. Uh, if I'm like scrambling here and I'm scrambling and I look at your text going hard day, I'm like, oh yeah, me too. Blah, 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 <laughs> you know, right back at you. And like, I didn't, I didn't hear anything. I, I responded, but I didn't hear anything. And I sort of was making a joke early in the pandemic that I go, you know, those instruments, your texting instruments, 
they actually have another capability. They're a phone. <laughs> you can actually pick them up and call someone. And one of the things is it's also hard because we want to set people up to help us. You know, if I call you as you're about to do a podcast and I'm like, hey, Jason, I need to talk. David, can't right now. About to do a podcast. Bye, bye, bye. You know, it's like, God, Jason's not there for me. I need to set Jason up to win. I need to call and go, Jason, I'm having a hard time. You might be busy now. I need to talk about it. When can we do that? So we want to love ourselves and have enough compassion to communicate, to talk, to let the other person know we actually need time for a talk or a FaceTime or a Skype and not a quick response back. I love that. That's part of our self-love, our self-compassion. You know, we're all about stocking up on toilet paper. It's a time to stock up on compassion for others and for ourselves. So look, you, as I mentioned, you are the expert on grief and I'm curious in, in terms of grief, in terms of your work and for, for someone who I think you know can see the forest through the trees, what do you think COVID-19 is doing to us? How are we going to look back? And as it pertains to grief, like how, how will grieving change? What are the, what do you think the aftershocks will be? Something I've said is uh, I'm concerned we're going to have a, probably we're in a mental health crisis already, but we're, it's going to get quite serious. So like how, you were to zoom out what do you think is happening with regards to grief right now what are you concerned about what, what what are you optimistic about also so let me segue that also into what we can do in this moment i think about you know going back to my own loss and writing finding meaning i didn't want to stop at acceptance after my son died i wanted to find meaning we can look at that in any situation. I don't want to just accept COVID-19 and like, okay, let's be done with it. We're going to come out of this as we do in all tragedies with some people with post-traumatic stress, some people with post-traumatic growth, and some people just in the middle. And I really want to help us lean towards that meaning, which is the post-traumatic growth. So how can we find that now? You know, we talk about this meaning. Is there like a grand meaning and purpose we're going to spot afterwards? We need to plant those seeds now. So one of the ways, you know, just the same way I say, we have to recognize these things and name them as grief. We also need to name meaning. I live on a block. I don't know. There's probably 30 houses on my block. I maybe knew two neighbors' first names. We're all on a text chain during this. We've become a community. That's meaningful. I want to name that. That's meaningful. People are on there going, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Does the elderly man at the end of the block need anything? That's meaningful. I've seen parents who literally, I've never seen this in my neighborhood. It's a statement of our world today. In their front yards, playing with their kids. Like you think about it, that's a scene from the 50s. I, you know, kids now move their kids to, you know, different play dates with one another. Parents don't play in the front yard with their kids. I see that, that's a meaningful moment. Jason, you and I 
are having a meaningful moment right now. You shared some of your losses. You shared some of your life. I've shared some of mine. People are listening to this. Let's name this as a meaningful moment. As we begin to name some of the meaning in the darkness, that's what will help us with the post-traumatic growth. Instead of us going through this, we will grow through this. So naming the grief, but also naming the meaning is so important. So communication has been a reoccurring theme of this conversation. And I think so many of us, myself included, we talked about texting, uh, could communicate poorly in a very rushed world where you know we're texting, we're multitasking and doing all that we have to do in a day. And so in this COVID-19 world and go forward, what are you hoping, like one, what are some practical tips on how we should be communicating in a way that feels supportive to others, whether they're struggling or not, whether they're talking about it or not. And then two, go forward, like what, what is your hope for communication out of this and, and, and a communication reset, if you will? So let's start there. I wanna just invite you to shift something. You said, who are maybe struggling let me tell you, everyone is struggling. And not just with COVID-19. I mean, I'll give you a really practical example. Someone in my own life, I reached out to them in the middle of the pandemic at the beginning and say, let's connect. And they're like, I'm in back-to-back calls. I can't do it. I And I said to them, everyone, I'm texting. Everyone is grounded. What kind of back-to-back calls are you in? I mean, let's connect. We're in a pandemic. And the person was like, so busy and all that. And of course, my mind wants to instantly judge, judge them, judge myself. Uh, Am I not worthy of speaking to what's up with them that they're not doing it? And the problem is judgment always deserves punishment. I will punish them or I will punish myself. When they finally called me, they told me what they've been going through. And it was just one more reminder everyone you're talking to is going through a struggle you know nothing about. Anyone who's coming across as a jerk. I mean, I have someone I work with who snapped the other day that like never would snap, like a snappy answer. And I realized later something they were struggling with. So I think if we can start from not everyone's fine, but everyone's struggling. If you start there, it'll help you be more compassionate. And how can you be compassionate to your struggles too? Mm. So if you had to uh, create your own Maslow's, your own hierarchy of needs in terms of grieving, in terms of being compassionate, you talked about communication. what, what, What... what would they be in a new in our, in our, a new world? We need our grief witnessed. We need another person to witness our grief. We weren't meant to be islands of grief. Jason, I witnessed your grief today. You witnessed mine. We're seeing each other on Skype. People can do that on FaceTime. We weren't meant to be islands of grief. 
if we can virtually connect, it's everything. And like we kind of alluded to earlier, there's never been a time in history when you couldn't have a funeral. I mean, we're a human species. We never allow the dead to stay where they died. We always move the body. We always mark the death. We always have a funeral. Whether you look at 9-11 or Vietnam War or AIDS crisis or horrible things we've been through, we rarely have these situations where we can't gather to honor and mark the death. So it's a very, very different world. You know, one of the things I've done through this is so many people weren't able to have a funeral, go to their local grief group, be in person and supporting one another. I mean, peer-to-peer support is really important in grief. And uh, I just couldn't stand the idea of people grieving alone. I set up a Facebook um, grief group that we meet daily. And people in the evening are showing up as speakers. We've got amazing speakers who are coming who are talking about how to journal through your grief, how to write about it. We have people who are like Liz Hernandez was talking about dealing with uh, Alzheimer's. Her mom had died. And uh, we're going to have Tanya Wright from Orange is the New Black. And uh, Melissa Rivers is showing up to talk about a parent dying. I mean, you know, all of us showing each other, showing up for each other collectively. I say we can't physically be together, but we can virtually hold each other's hands because it's so important that people not be alone as they are physically alone. I love that. We're definitely going to, for you guys listening, we're going to have a link to David's uh, group in the show notes. And so something you have on your website, uh, grief.com, great domain name. Uh, you have the, you have this quote, which I, I just love, and I'm, I'm going to read it for everyone. Every time a baby is born, God has decided that the world will continue. In the same way, every day you wake up, you've been given another day of life to experience. When was the last time you fully experienced that day? We all live under the stars, but do we look up at the sky? Do we really touch and taste life? Do we see and feel the extraordinary, especially in the ordinary? That's actually from life lessons that I did with Kubler-Ross. And to really think about some point, we're going to walk back into our ordinary world. And all these things we haven't been able to do, we're going to get to do again. Are they just going to become ordinary again? Or can we see the extraordinariness in that ordinariness? So what do you think makes you extraordinary in the world of grief? Like you, you, you are, is it, is it just life experience? Is it the combination of experience with effort and talent? I'm just, I'm curious, you are. Oh, I joke about, I literally make every mistake there is. I bumble through life. And so, you know, I joke about, I can joke with people about, oh yeah, no, 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 I tried that. That that was a messy way to go. Uh, I, I, I think that I'm just, so open about my messiness that it all sort of works out and it makes us all relatable to one another and vulnerability. So 
you know, usually when someone's going on, I can, you know, about what their friend did, I can go, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what my friend, and I mean, you know, and then I can go, and here's the mess I made, so let me tell you how to maybe not that make that same mess that I already did and tried for us both. So you're humble, you're and vulnerable. I've had the, and, and I've had those life experiences that I've lived through. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who's, you know, been at the university studying grief for years. I've been, you know, dealing with it personally and professionally. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm so honored. I'm just really honored to um, have done this. And, and, you know, one of the things you were kind that you mentioned, Mother Teresa, uh, she really is one of the people besides Elizabeth Kugler-Ross that put me on the map. And when my first book came out and Mother Teresa had praised it, there were, there were a lot of critics that came out about that. And, uh, and I actually, I was still pretty young and I certainly felt like I didn't, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve what I had gotten from her. And I remember someone said to me, if you don't deserve it, then earn it. So every day I try to earn some of the some of the good, some of the some of the things that have been given to me. And I want to make meaning from those bad things that have happened. So I'm curious for someone who has the life experience, who has the knowledge, who has the curiosity, the vulnerability, the ability to be humble all the resources. What do you do when you're having a bad day? I try to let myself have a bad day. I try to practice some self-compassion and it's not easy. It's not easy. You know, I, I am a, my go-to emotion is anger. Many people's go-to emotion is sadness. You know, I always say those of us that are go-to emotion angers and sometimes men are that way. We don't, we don't get as much compassion. You know, if someone's sitting in the corner crying, we're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? If you're like angry, no one goes, oh my goodness, you're in pain. How can I help you? It's like, you need to get it together and calm down. And so I, you know, I'm Which is you know, like I the worst say, thing you can say to someone is calm right, right, somebody <laughs> said, right. And I always say anger is pain's bodyguard, you know, so I just have to have compassion and remind myself the way that everyone else, I teach everyone else, if I'm going to anger, you know, that it means I'm in pain. What's, what's my pain? How can I look at that? What's my fear underneath that? And then, you know, when you talk about your fear and your pain, that unites us. We all at our core have the same fears and pains. Well, I, I, I could talk to you for hours. I know we're short on time, so I'm just going to leave you with, with one last question. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to think of um, when they think of, of David Kessler? What do you want them to think about how we view grief? You know, if you think about like grief, I guess grief, I grief pre-Kessler and grief post-Kessler. Well, I, I, you know, there's so many people who do this work. I, I, I can't even fathom the thought that anything's pre me or post me because well, I think there's so many people. But I, I understand the question. I guess, you know, what I would say is so many people ask, is there life after death for our loved ones? 
And I always say, yes, I believe in life after death for those who have died. But I also believe in life after death for us. So I hope that I've helped people find meaning and understand that their loved one's life who died was so precious, but actually so is ours. And how can we not be paralyzed by grief, but experience it, live with it, and find a way to honor a life, honor our loved one's life, and live a life that honors those people who've died. You know, you talked about so many people in your life. We, we often say, you know, when my loved one died, a part of me died with him. And I'm here to say, and a part of them lives on in you. So, you know, Jason, what part of your father lives on in you? What part of your friend lives on in you? What part of your grandmother lives on in you? You know, all those people live on in us. And to me, that's the legacy that I'm hoping people will have. Well, amen to that, David. Thank you for all the incredible work uh, you've done and you continue to do. And uh, again, it's been humbling and an honor to, to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be with everyone. <laughs>